Welcome to the International History Now podcast series. In this series, we'll be inviting guests to explore topical questions and to share their thoughts, drawing on experiences and research from around the world. My name is Dina Gusenova and I'm a historian teaching at the LSE in London. And I'm Georgos Yanakopoulos uh, and I teach history and politics at City University of London and NYU in London. And in the first two episodes, we will be discussing aspects of the ongoing debate on the so-called monument crisis, a struggle for the symbolic recognition of black lives in public spaces. So the story begins with the killing of an unarmed black man, George Floyd, by a white policeman in the United States on the 25th of May 2020. People throughout the world were shocked by the brazen murder of this man in front of a running camera, especially since Floyd's minor offense occurred in the context of struggles to keep his livelihood amid the coronavirus crisis. Different political movements have been seeking to draw public attention to the prevalence of systemic racism. Structural inequalities may be hidden, but protesters have tried to make racism more visible to the public eye, targeting monuments and public spaces which honor figures associated with racism, colonialism and slavery. On 7 June 2020, the 19th century statue of Edward Colston uh, was spontaneously thrown into the river by a group of people during an anti-racist protest. Colston was a 17th century merchant from Bristol involved in the slave trade, but celebrated as a virtuous citizen. Ten days later, in retaliation, a right-wing group smashed the 18th century gravestone commemorating an African uh, living in Bristol, one of the few of its kind in the UK, prompting fears for uh, more such attacks. Meanwhile, local authorities boarded up statues of public figures such as Churchill, Mandela and Gandhi ahead of upcoming protests. Welcome to the second episode in the International History Now series. Today we'll be exploring the global dimensions of the monument crisis and particularly we'll be turning to the post-socialist world, looking at a case study from Poland and another case study from Tanzania. And, and we'll be discussing the parallels between decommunization and decolonization, and also talking about the new nostalgia for socialism and comparing different commemorative practices in, uh, in Europe and in Africa. Our first guest is Michal Muravsky from the School of Slavonic and East European Studies at University College London. Michal is an anthropologist of architecture and the author of The Palace Complex, a Stalinist skyscraper, capitalist Warsaw, and a city transfixed uh, from Indiana University. Michal, thanks for joining the program. I was wondering, how far do you think we can go back to contextualize the current events? Is there anything more to be said? And maybe uh, anything more to be said in a global perspective about the current monument crisis? What's happening in the the Colston statue removal, kind of spontaneous toppling of the Colston statue, and the ripples it's had in the UK and in and in Europe and Belgium and elsewhere, they are also part of a kind of a wave of iconoclasm. That I, th- I think we could say began in began in 
2013 in in Ukraine and has uh, and has spread throughout the world um, since then. Can you expand a bit on on iconoclasm in Ukraine? Why do you trace that in Ukraine? So in December 2013, the statue of Lenin was taken down in Kiev in the, um, during the, the protests that led to the massacre in, in, in Maidan and the toppling of the government and then the, the annexation of Crimea by, by, by Russia. And then this huge wave of uh, Leninopad, Lenin fall, swept Ukraine. Hundreds of statues of Lenin, I think maybe over a thousand, were, were removed in the space of a couple of years. Uh, then this fed into a decommunization statue removal wave in Poland, and it happened. Maybe it wasn't necessarily connected, but the whole uh, movement to remove statues of, of Cecil Rhodes in Cape Town and subsequently in Oxford, and the, and the Confederate statue controversy in the U.S. kind of happened subsequently. So there is this there is this ongoing momentum. Of, uh, of iconoclasm. Can I just throw in there, I mean, how bizarre is it mm-hmm. that Lenin gets toppled before Rhodes? It's really bizarre, but it's one of these moments where I think you can make some sort of global east, global south, global north comparison, which has some beef. But there's a really good text by two Polish scholars, Piotr Zaremba and Magda Szczęściak, and they're trying to make sense of the comparison between uh, Robert E. Lee and the Confederate um Uh, statues in the US and decommunization in Poland. And they point out that in Poland, it's broadly speaking, conservative, reactionary, regressive people who are taking down the monuments and progressive kind of left-wing people who are defending them. Whereas in the US and in the UK now, it's the other way around. There is this completely sort of opposite. It's a, it's a simultaneous moment and a connected moment of iconoclasm. But the the kind of battle lines are drawn in a completely opposite way. Yeah, I wanted to continue on this and press you a bit more on these strategies of recontextualization, if you like. For instance, one of the proposals about the Costa Monument was to place it as it is toppled, as it were, in a museum and mm-hmm. uh, alongside uh, uh, all these materials from the protests. That again points to, to, to the strength of institutions like the museum, institutions like yeah. the university. Uh, what are your thoughts on on strategies of recontextualization that makes our make our cities and institutions more inclusive and and obviously tell a different story than the story that we're used uh, to be told? The museum can't really do much unless the act of placing the the monument in the museum is preceded by by some kind of violent gesture, effectively by some sort of whether or more or less spontaneous or more or radi- more or less radical gesture. So well, I don't know. I mean, I don't know whether the Colston and the statue taking uh, the, the Colston and chucking him in the river was was planned in advance. I'm sure there's lots of people on Twitter claiming that it was, but to all intents and purposes, it was a much more genuine, spontaneous act of iconoclasm than than the most, and even than most taking downs of statues of Lenin or Dzerzhinsky in Warsaw or Moscow or wherever. I mean, it's evident that loads of very few people knew, uh, certainly outside of Bristol, maybe also inside Bristol, who the hell Colston was or who Milligan in London's Docklands is. And now people are aware of this and they are aware of the legacies of, of slavery and journalists are going on the UCL uh, Legacies of Slavery website and picking out these... Uh, These traces in our in our everyday lives and in our institutions, and that's and that's fantastic, and that would never have happened without this um, with this kind of monumental uh, imaginary. I mean, obviously, if we were to take down 
Churchill and put him in the museum, then there would be an uproar and people would notice. But because Colston, by in the grander scheme of things, was a little known historical figure, I think placing him in a museum in an orderly fashion may have caused some conversations among academics, perhaps globally and certainly like within the civic conversation of Bristol, but it wouldn't have had much impact. So I think the current moment really demonstrates the limits to the, that the museum and the institution can only really have an impact if it's responding in a, in a substantive way to some sort of, to, to the, some sort of some, something which is in the air. At the moment, these figures haven't been placed in museums yet. Can I ask you a bit about your experience of these open-air monument parks? I mean, I'm familiar with the one in Moscow, but maybe you have your own yeah. impressions of it. But to what extent are there other such parks? I'm also interested in the broad, more broadly, mm. like the repurposing of buildings that are prominently associated with uh, an oppressive regime. I mean, you've written about mm. uh, the, the Warsaw skyscraper. I don't think it was invented in Eastern Europe. I think I think Richard Drayton mentions in, in his article, uh, Rose Must Not Fall, that following the Indian partition, there was a monument park set up um, somewhere well, with a lot of ex-colonial statues. I'm not sure where that monument park is, but there's the Museum Park in Moscow. There's the the, the um, there's another monument park in Budapest that I've visited. There's there's one in uh, Kozłówka in Lublin in, in the east of Poland. And they're all wonderfully kind of kitsch places where these monuments are just clustered together in this extremely awkward way. But through their proximity, through the very surreal kind of almost like vernacular, surreal setting of, of all of them together. They, they create so much more space for interpretation than some sort of over-curated museum space. And with buildings, so, I mean, the building that, I, that I've written about is this Stalinist skyscraper in, in Warsaw, the, the, the Palace of Culture and Science, which is this vast entity that um, dominates over the cityscape of Warsaw and that And this is a building that since the fall of communism has become more and more popular. It used to be very much identified by many people as a, as a sort of symbol of Soviet oppression and of Russian oppression in, in, in the Polish context, uh, kind of colonial Russian oppression as well as just communism. But since the fall of communism, it's gradually become much more not only accepted, not only tolerated as a kind of inconvenient monstrosity but but sort of actually adored and loved and and um an object of fascination and affection it continued to be so until the current so the the current polish regime the current polish government which which is a kind of a populist right wing very kind of viciously anti-communist government took and one of their first acts was to intensify intensify this wave of decommunization and um And also uh, in 2017, the suggestion was raised by, by several ministers to, to demolish the Palace of Culture. The spectre of this ultimate act of destroying the supreme remnant of the communist legacy in Poland was reintroduced by the, by the, uh, by the government. And this endowed the building with, with a great deal more kind of radical energy than, than it had before. Uh, and it's often used as a site of protests. Uh, I think that the the useful thing about something like the Palace of Culture is is partly its ghostliness and its reminder of a and its zombie like character and the, uh, the fact that it represents a time that has passed. But partly, what is useful about it is um, certain remnants of the past 
are powerful, not necessarily because of what they stand for, because of the meanings that they contain, but because of the way in which they are still useful and still public in the context of a privationary um, kind of um, uh, extremely exclusionary um, capitalist city. So, so these ghosts, ghosts of publicness, uh, what I call public spirit in the, in the context of the Palace of Culture, are the types of ghosts that can not necessarily be rendered visible, but perhaps um, their, their usefulness can be retained. I mean, we've talked a bit about the iconoclastic movements and to some extent also how communities deal with these legacies. Um, mm. But what about specifically the responses of authorities and their kind of rationale? I mean, one argument has been this idea that, yes, maybe they should be removed, but in a different uh, way or in a different process. But there's also this argument that state authorities are kind of there to protect heritage. This heritage, this heritage of well, both the heritage of socialism and the heritage of, heritage of slavery, which are which are so different in so many ways, they're both certainly global global affairs, and they and they probably have to be handled in some sort of global uh, way as well as as well as in a, as well as in a local way. People keep pretty Patel and Keir Starmer keep talking about toppling things in a democratic way, which is bizarre because surely people taking doing things, you know, uh, of their own volition is also, according to some definitions, democratic. But but maybe, so yeah, if the British government can't be trusted to, to, to deal with this stuff, then perhaps this is a, is, a, is a strong argument for establishing a kind of heritage international, which um, is has as prominent a representation of people, of institutions and, and governments from formerly colonized countries in Africa and the Caribbean and elsewhere, who should actually be sort of do, do a humanitarian intervention and, and swoop in to, to kind of instruct the, the, the British government. Heritage International, that's probably not UNESCO, but I guess something No, well, yeah, exactly, of course, there is already UNESCO. Yeah. There is UNESCO, but it seems like it's it's strangely silent on these matters, which is also remarkable in its own right. It is crazy, right? Yeah, you know, I'm sure they've tweeted something, but they haven't. They, it's not like they've been prominent in the public debate. Something yeah. I just thought now is that it's funny that all of these... So in terms of kind of the, the form of the counter monument and stuff, so uh, there's this endless discussion about isn't it weird that we are still building all these monuments to people in this kind of really 19th century way of just like a bronze or a stone figure on a plinth. Um, and this this discussion about we have to develop alternative uh, forms of memorialization, of monumentalization has, of course, been going on for decades and decades and decades. And the idea of a counter monument is not new or an, or an, or an anti-monument or alternative monument um, goes back to the 1950s to the 1930s f- further than that. But still, this bizarre bronze dead man on a, on a, uh, on a plinth retains itself as the primary form of, mo- of monumentality. We're listening to the Belarusian band Nero Zubel in their 2010 track, Lenin. From post-socialist Poland, we now move on to Tanzania. The merit of um, decentralizing this uh, 
discussion and bringing in different perspectives from places like Eastern Europe or places like Africa, uh, seeing in a comparative angle how different societies that have undergone radical transformations, and there are some of them are still undergoing radical transformations, are dealing with matters of the past and especially with monuments and public memory. And I think here Michal's uh, you know, discussion of, of, of Poland and uh, um, of certain monuments and uh, buildings and how they have been repurposed is, is very interesting in that regard. We have invited Alma Simba, a student from Tanzania graduating this year from the International History Department, to share her views of the European monument crisis. She is also the editor of Lacuna Lit, a literary magazine based here at the LSE, which publishes writing by women of color. The magazine tackles ideas ranging from complex family and national histories to non-binary identity and, more generally, what it means to be young in the 21st century. Alma has done extensive research on British cultural policies in the interwar period and the cultural history of Tanganyika. Alma, welcome to the program. What's your impression of the way that Europeans deal with monuments, the way that Europeans construct monuments and the figures that these monuments have? I think Western civilizations really prioritize statues and it's an, it's an emblem of their their prowess it's an emblem of their domination which is which is why they they feature so many figures who are actually involved in these various forms of domination whereas in Tanzania because we were socialist um under Nyerere I think there's there's a different approach to to how we view ourselves and how we construct our national identity probably most people in Britain will have heard of the roads must fall campaign but also the the kinds of colonial monuments that exist in in the non-socialist um, African countries, but specifically in South Africa, but actually probably less is known about about um, about the socialist African countries. What sorts of monuments come from this period, and what do they actually show? What we have specifically in Dar es Salaam, the capital, the kind of cultural and trading capital of Tanzania, is it's called the Uhuru Torch Monument, and Uhuru means freedom in Kiswahili, and the monument is a white obelisk, and at the top of it is a replica of this Uhuru torch, which was an actual torch that was put on top of Mount Kilimanjaro um, just before the independence campaign really, really took off. And because we haven't got a lot of statues either in Tanzania, really. And I think it's important that the statue that we have, which has been erected by us, is one that depicts an, an inanimate object because that speaks to the language of what is important to us. You're emphasizing statues erected by us, uh, Tanzania, you Tanzanians. Uh, but um, I'm wondering if you could say a little bit more about the kinds of statues that existed uh, in Tanganyika in the interwar period during the British mandate system. I know you've done research on this. What I have focused on in my research is the role of the Askari monument in, in 1927 in Tanzania. Germany had lost the war and therefore lost its colonial possessions. And um, the British under the League of Nations acquired the territory, which was then German East Africa, and renamed it the Tanganyika territory. And so it became a British mandated territory, um, which they, they, they governed by indirect rule. 
what the British did was there was a statue of of Hermann von Wismann, a German explorer and one of the one of the early pioneers of colonial expansion in in East Africa. And von Wismann was holding a sword, and at his feet was a dead lion and a native a native Tanganyikan looking up at him. And then, as I understand, in 1919, the von Wismann monument was removed and placed as a war trophy in London at the Imperial War Museum, but then returned to Germany in 1922 and was put there in, in, on display in, in front of the University of Hamburg and remained there until the 60s when student protesters demanded that it be removed altogether from, uh, from the streets and it then was placed in a museum, I believe. But anyway, quite an interesting career for a colonial monument. But what you are interested in is what the British put instead of the von Wismann Memorial um, in Dar es Salaam. The British monument depicted this African soldier. Askari just means soldier in Kiswahili. And, and so it takes very different meanings in the various European areas of Africa. What I find really interesting about the monument is that people don't know the chronology of this monument's installation. The British introduced this monument of an Askari, but it actually isn't an Askari who would have fought in Tanganyika. Because in Tanganyika, the Askaris who were fighting were on the German side, um, and they played a heavy role in, in the, the war campaigns, the military campaigns, but they also played a heavy role in colonial consolidation. In British East Africa, Askari meant the carrier corps and the porters who, who were part of, of the Allied army. So when the British acquired power in the interwar period in the 1920s, they introduced this monument, which was supposed to kind of fit with this language of self-rule and self-determination, which depicted this African soldier. But it's not actually representative of the Africans who fought in Tanganyika. And this is important because, again, it, it falls into what I believe about statues and them not necessarily being historical facts, but being historical fabrications. So the British were putting the statue to, to kind of create this, this fabrication that the Africans that they had come to rule had been fighting along, along the British this whole time. And the Germans who had, the, the Tanganyikans who had fought with the Germans were anomalies. And this is something that's simply not true. The monument has become so accepted as a national symbol, as a symbol of our identity that it's not it's not even questioned that it what it was who who erected it a lot of a lot of the issues with these statues is the role that governments want them to take do you agree in other words with the assertion that uh, you know statues are a part of heritage and 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 maybe they can be seen as in other words as parallel to what historiography does I think these statues that we erect of who we decide to, to, to glorify are things that are decided by people who are not necessarily at, of that time. For example, the conversation about Edward Colston and, and that statue in Bristol, I don't imagine, I'm not sure, but I don't imagine that Edward Colston himself put up that statue or that statue was erected when he was alive. But it's it's about a retrospective history. So what I what I meant is that these figures are important in defining the national identity that exists till today. 
Is your sense that Europeans can learn something from this? I mean, would it be a way forward to um, to think more about these kinds of conceptual monuments for the future rather than these figures? I think it's really interesting, this different approach that Europeans or European countries and even Western civilizations, because this, this conversation is happening in the US as well, as you said, about statues. And I think it's really about the language that governments use to create these national identities. And in Western civilizations, it's something that is a century-old tradition, you know, erecting statues and statues being a symbol of, of pride and a symbol of conquest. One of, my, one of the highlights of my time has been a visit that I made to Berlin. And I was also very fascinated by the way that Germany, um, you know, a Western country has had to negotiate this very easily, in theory, of course, very easily after World War II, there could have been statues erected, you know, that were, in a sense, honoring that that past of Nazism. And that's been done in the way um, in Britain, honoring the past of slavery, honoring the past of colonialism, and also honoring that past of wartime heroes, quote unquote, which is which is how we get to these debates about Churchill, etc., etc., sitting at home, you know, watching what was going on, being engaged in social media. I was wondering about, you know, your own personal perspective on this. Did you feel motivated to go out in the streets? And what, what do you make of the, you know, of the action in the streets, as it were, of, of London and elsewhere? I'm in London away from home. So going out was something that I I decided to to not do because if I was to get sick, I wouldn't have the the family structures or friendship structures that could take care of me if if I really fell unwell. And I'm glad that, in a way, um, we've been forced to all stay inside because we're, we have to f- think of new ways of gathering, of protesting, of mobilizing, which is something that we didn't talk about before, even though there were people, whether it's disabled people or you know, compromised people, who may have not been able to engage in these activities even before the crisis. I think that it's something that people in my generation and especially other black people that I know have been engaging with these issues for really the the entirety of our lives. I think a lot of us are feeling a lot of grief. I think a lot of us are also feeling overwhelmed because the backdrop of COVID has forced many of us to be inside. Um, so, so that's one of the difficulties now. And I think there's also a lot of pent up anger during a time of a global pandemic and a time when black people have been have been revealed to 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 be more susceptible to the virus which is also something that is a result of institutional racism is a result of the inequalities that arise from capitalism forcing a lot of black and other ethnic minority communities to be in close quarters with each other to work in essential jobs and therefore be more susceptible more vulnerable to the virus. So I think overall there's just an air of inequality and injustice that we have been feeling for a long time. I've always thought what would I do in a time of crisis? And I'm finding that what's most important to me is this concept of solidarity because this is something that was really pushed by our leader Nyerere, who was our first president, who was a staunch socialist, a big pan-Africanist, um, and also just a big liberation fighter for the black cause, even outside of Africa. Hey, 
listening to the band Sunburst from Tanzania and their 1976 song Vijana, which means youth in Swahili. Alma's case study was very interesting because it had different layers of history in the making of a monument and also the layers of representation. She referred to this monument honoring an African soldier, but built under the British mandate. However, within the story of the making of that monument, uh, one can easily see the uh, competition between uh, the British and the German imperial rule. And she also then spoke about how this monument involved, evolved into a, becoming a kind of colonial, post-colonial monument. I was wondering, Dina, what do you make of what of this particular case study, which is radically different to to other European case studies? Yes, I've been fascinated by this case study and particularly by one element of it that that uh, Alma highlighted, which is that the actual soldier Askari stands for more than the Tanganyikan identity uh, that, that the British are trying to construct. I mean, in a way, they're trying to construct a kind of national identity, but actually the Askaris were sort of uh, deployed throughout East Africa in, in different roles. And I think it, she just highlights the difficulty of a kind of post-colonial subjectivity expressed in, in this monument. But also, I think it's interesting because she acknowledges in a way, in this particular case, the monument has been accepted and kind of absorbed into a national narrative, even though it's actually fairly evident that it was built by the British. So it's not just a case that, you know, the call to decolonize monuments is necessarily a call to remove all monuments. But at the same time, I think it's also it also became clear from the conversation that she is very sympathetic to the current impulse to decolonize monuments in the UK. So what she said about Tanzania shouldn't necessarily, and interwar Tanganyika shouldn't necessarily simply be exported to to kind of whitewash a sort of responsibility for the presence of colonial monuments in the metropole itself. I agree. And I think that, you know, if we really think about our own national heritages and the way we construct them and the way they're being displayed in public spaces, they're not simply national heritages. There's all sorts of transnational, international, even global dimensions uh, that that components of these kinds of heritages that uh, the monuments are just simply an expression of them. Uh, I would say Mikhail and Alma have introduced this kind of global component because they've shown that memory is never just national in its remit. It's, uh, they're always international subjectivities in a way involved. It is, and also I think we shouldn't think of heritage as a static thing, that it's like a, a piece of marble that is there and will be preserved in this form in sort of for, for eternity and that there are organizations such as states or UNESCO that are, that are there to preserve them. I think what's important is that uh, societies also are, feel empowered to recontextualize them or change their status. So we don't necessarily need to think of um, the physical removal of a monument as the most radical act or as the most progressive act necessary. Sometimes recontextualization, rededication is, is, is actually the more um, serious intervention here. So by this token, Dina, what do you make of the recent uh, decision of the 
Turkish government to turn Hagia Sophia, the, you know, the famous uh, um, Byzantine temple, to a, a mosque. Well, this is obviously probably the start of a new conversation, <laughs> but just for now, um, I would say, I mean, of course, at, at one level, I, I, I see this as a kind of step back. I mean, it's an unfortunate decision to close off what was actually a monument that was accessible to a, a large number of different communities. As far as I understand, it wasn't just a museum, but in its state uh, now, in its kind of post-Atatürk state, it was also open for services. In some cases, there were, there were Orthodox uh, and, and uh, um, Muslim ceremonies, I think, um, going on as well as it being a museum. Now, of course, it's going to be closed off and I, I think it's it's a shame, but I'm also not entirely sure that uh, a commentary such as that by UNESCO is necessarily helpful, it's, that it simply denounces this kind of act of national sovereignty that Erdogan has kind of performed there. Um, um, I don't know, I think let's see and um, wait wait some more discussion. I, I, I'm waiting for critical voices from, from Turkey, maybe, to unpack uh, the context of this decision. We have not, of course, reached the end of this recent conflict over the real power of public symbols. More statues may fall or be boxed up and more names will change. Some of the themes raised in this series of conversations on the uses of the term vandalism or how to resolve conflicts over public memory will be discussed for a long time ahead. And we hope to be back with more conversations on complex histories and national memory and other topical questions in this series, International History Now. Thank you to our guests, Michal Moravsky, Alma Simba, Carlo Invernizia Cetti and Nausicaa Elmecki, and thanks for listening. (laughs) 